Ready? Hit it! Hello everyone and welcome to Variety Theatre The Spice of Life podcast with Maria Lovelady and Michael Allen Bailey, a podcast that aims to bring all things variety out of the wings and into the limelight. So without further ado, let's get this show on the road. Coming up on today's show... We're talking to the chairman of the British Music Hall Society, Adam Borzo. And we're going to discuss everything with Adam from being backstage at the Albert Hall... To being Britney Spears' tribute acts in a nursing home. And we're going to find out which unlikely popular entertainer championed the weave. So, Mike, how are you feeling about our first podcast? I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really um, happy that we've been able to put this together. It's one of those things, isn't it? It's kind of all happened before we've even thought about it. It's like (laughs) (laughs) the next thing you know, we're here. And it's like it's like the action is happening before the thought. Yeah. So to fill everyone in, I think, that's listening, Mike and I... Uh, this summer, wrote a play called Twice Nightly that was premiered at the Liverpool Theatre Festival. And it was about a double act called Don and Madge who were touring 1920s and 1930s Liverpool theatres. Yeah, we're actors and performers ourselves and we wanted to incorporate our experiences, but we decided to put in in a period setting uh, and set it in the era of musical and variety because that's our favourite era. We love stuff like that. That's what we're really inspired by, stuff like Singing in the Rain and all those kind of old Hollywood musicals. And even though, you know, they're, they're made in the 50s, they incorporate that time, which is the time of, well, vaudeville in America, but in British time, it would have been musical and variety. And when we were doing our research for the show, we were just finding so much stories that were so exciting, things that were, you know, quite famous, things that have been forgotten. And we were just so bowled over, weren't we, about the amount of uh, interesting material out there. So when we were rehearsing um, our show, we went to libraries, we went to museums. To the restricted section. To the restrict. We kept calling it the restricted section in the library, but they meant the <laughs> reference section. We had to get out quickly before Filch and Mrs. Norris came and found <laughs> us with our lanterns. So, because of all this information that we've got in our heads when we were doing the show, we thought, well, what better to do than put it all in one place so that you can go on this journey with us. And what I think is really interesting as well is that you don't have to be massively into the theatre to appreciate all this stuff. I mean... Music Hall eventually became Variety and Variety was in everybody's living rooms because it was such a big part of TV. And I think different forms of Variety Mm. are still on TV today, such as Britain's Got Talent, you've got comedians, we've got dance troupes. It's still out there. It's just Mm. been rebranded again, I think, under a different name. So before we get ahead of ourselves, Mike, why don't we define what Music Hall is and what Variety is to the listeners? Well, I think they're one and the same. I mean, musical and variety are the same thing. They were just rebranded sometimes in, in sometime in the early 1900s. So I think musical was the combination of song, dance and comedy, mainly. It was always kind of those bawdy songs. I mean, musical originated from like the back of pubs and taverns. It was it was musical theatre in a way, but in its rawest form. And it was kind of... Um, theatre and entertainment for the public, for the masses. And I think that's what's important is that it was for the masses. So Mm. it's not sometimes we think of theatre today as it might be a bit more highbrow or quite 
inaccessible. Ticket mm-hmm. prices are so expensive. In these days, it was so cheap to go to the to these shows. And people were coming to these music halls to be entertained, to have a drink, to socialise. A lot of the time, these music halls, you know, some of them had heating mm-hmm. or, or were warmer than being at home. Yeah. So a lot of the time, the... Um, act that was on was almost incidental but then as time went on people were making names for themselves and stars were rising and people would be singing these songs and people would know them all over the country because they'd be touring you know from land end to john o'groats basically and it was the star it was the star maker as well because they weren't always professionals that were getting up and doing it they used to have things called free and easies which were basically the the period's equivalent of like an open mic night. So amateurs could stand up and if you knew a song and if you could tell a joke, you'd just get up and do it. And if if you got the audience involved, that was all that it was about. And And that was what people loved. I think audiences were notoriously difficult. So they were, you know, drunk, loud. There were prostitutes in the audience. They used to throw things. So they would throw bottles. They would throw like boots and shoes. They would throw, I mean... They even used to throw, like, dead cats and things like that. Yeah. I mean, we think we've got it bad now, don't we? <laughs> I mean, now, you know, modern-day audiences, somebody opens a bag of Revels too loud and we're like, oh, what a terrible audience, whereas, you yeah. know, back in those days, they were having to contend with stuff like that. And they used to um, stand on the balcony and they would actually pee over the balcony onto the stage if the act wasn't good enough. So basically, <laughs> you had to be really, really good at your craft to succeed in these places. And that gave birth to a lot of talent. So that's Music Hall. So what happened? How did it become Variety? Well, it just sort of got rebranded as Variety in 1918. It was essentially exactly the same thing. It's a bit like when, do you remember like in the early 2000s when they were going to change Cocoa Pops to Choco Krispies? Do you remember that? (laughs) Did it work? Of course it didn't. It's still Cocoa Pops. It was clearly just this big advertising thing. But <laughs> it's basically, it's like Jif to Sif. You know what? Yeah, There's yeah, absolutely yeah. no difference. It's exactly the same thing. Um, but like with everything, it just needed a bit of a facelift, a bit of a revamp, um, modernising and making more trendy. And I, I think Adam, who we speak to in this episode, who's the chairman of the British Music Hall Society, you know, he explains that in further detail that a lot of it was to do with laws coming in and licenses coming in within the industry that meant they they had to sort of rebrand it and take it out of the pubs and into these stunning purpose-built theatres. Absolutely. And it changed as well, interestingly enough, which is something that we do look at in our play as well, Twice Nightly, something we were interested in, with the rise of cinema mm-hmm. and the introduction of a, a brand new medium. All of a sudden, it wasn't just on stage. It was on screen and it was accessible to even more people. And I think a lot of those famous Hollywood pioneers, such as Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy, that we credit with so many gags, actually, as fantastic as they were, they were actually gags and storylines and characters that had been going on for years and years on the, the stages of Music Hall and Variety, but had never been filmed. And these early Hollywood pioneers moved over to America and they were just the first ones to put them on film. Well, that was initially what Fred Carno, who was the big impresario of British um, Music Hall and comedy especially, that initially he was invited over to America for that reason, to put the acts that were so successful onto the screen. And that's what our show, Twice Nightly, is about. And as we said, that's being performed this summer. We're at the Liverpool Theatre Festival on the 7th of September, and we are at Thorrington Theatre on the 5th of September. (laughs) 
So every week, what we'd like to do is talk about our favourite facts that we have discovered. <laughs> I'm really sorry. I've just seen a really funny picture of Michael Parkinson on Facebook. And it's, it's really I'm sorry, carry on. Carry on, you were doing really well. So every week, what we'd really like to talk about are some of our favourite facts that we've found out throughout this process. So Mike, what's one of the best things you found out? I think one of my favourite facts is that comedians back in the music hall days used to sell each other jokes. So rather than risk gags being stolen from one another, a comedian, if it went down really well in an act, would sell it to another comedian and they would buy it. And that's kind of how they built their built their acts and their sets. They would see a really successful joke happen on stage and they would buy it from the comedian. I think that's really interesting. Like You couldn't do that now. No, you couldn't do it because someone would just be there filming it and then... Yeah, exactly. Just... It's all on YouTube. <laughs> what about you? What's your favourite fact that you've learned? Because obviously we've learned so much. What I really loved was that in the theatre world, as we've said before, if you could get on stage and make an audience laugh or entertain the audience, you were going to bring in money for mm. the producers. And so... A woman could be a great performer and get an income of her own as an independent person. And I just love that idea. And we looked at some of the numbers and you had performers such as the male impersonator, Vesta Tilly. She was a woman and she yeah. used to dress up as a man, which yeah. is another story for another day because mm -hmm. I just love that. Oh, she's a, a whole episode in herself, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, and the fact that we still think those things are taboo and yet they were happening 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, another reason why we're doing the podcast is to not forget. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the top paid stars of the day. You had Maud Allen, who got paid £2,000 a week, which, to be honest, I'd be quite happy to get paid that right now to I perform. I know, £2,000 a week. And I, I did the maths, and I, I'm not great at maths, so it might not have been <laughs> right, but Google told me that the equivalent of £2,000 early 1900s is £211,000 today. That's like staggering, isn't it? Yeah. That's completely staggering. So she got paid that per week to perform and she took home that money. And so women didn't need to necessarily be married. You didn't need mm. to rely on anybody else. You could be a career woman. And that wasn't really happening in many other industries. And, and to put that into perspective, that was the same at that time of paying the average wage per week for 1,500 labourers. So you could employ... 1,500 labourers or more Dallin for one week. Well, I know what I'd rather have. <laughs> <laughs> but it's incredible, isn't it? And it was, even then, it was probably the only industry in the world that wasn't just a man's world. Yeah, and women could come in and, and do their thing and also not just a straight world. You know, there was mm -hmm. a lot of diversity backstage in terms of gender, sexuality, ethnicity mm -hmm. and we're not negating the fact that things were happening backstage that we wouldn't want to happen today but as we've said if you could deliver a strong act on stage you could be top dog and that is something that I love and can't wait to explore in the coming weeks. So we've covered just some of the very basic facts about musical and variety and over the coming weeks we'll go over them all and we'll explore them in a lot more detail 
But now I think it would be a really good time to get in our first guest because when it comes to knowledge of Music Hall and Variety Theatre, there's nobody better. Maria, tell us a little bit about who we've got coming on today. We have got Adam Borzone, who is the chairman of the British Music Hall Society. And when we started researching for the show, he was our first port of call. And we, we emailed him, didn't we? We emailed the society. We didn't know who we were emailing and we didn't know whether anyone would get in touch with us. Um, we thought we would either get no reply or a really kind of generic you know thank you for your interest kind of thing yeah. but uh he was brilliant he was so personable and he really went out of his way to help us and support us and he gave us recommendations of books to read and resources to tap into we we literally couldn't have done it without him and the society is a really great place for anybody really that likes entertainment they do cover musical and variety but it spills over into so many different areas and they hold talks and they put on shows and there's a great Facebook page that I would suggest that you check out. So when we knew that we were doing a podcast, we've, we've got so many great guests lined up, but we thought, who can we have on first? Should we get him on? Let's do it. And Adam joins us now. Thank you very much for being our very first guest on our first episode. My pleasure, my pleasure. Well, you've cheered me up because yesterday, my niece and nephew rang me. They were on holiday and they said, Uncle Adam, could you do us a favour? And I was like, yep, of course I can. Would I go round and check on their guinea pigs? And I said, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I got there, one guinea pig running around lovely, the other one as stiff as a board. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> We what shouldn't did you laugh. Do? We shouldn't what laugh. did you do? Oh, I managed to get a box. I, we've just had some, I just had some new outside lights. So I got some cardboard boxes uh, and I filled it with hay and I've laid him in there. They're back tomorrow. They're, they come back tomorrow. Um, so, yeah, we've laid it in there. Got a little, I got an old tea towel, put a tea towel on it. And yeah, so. <laughs> do they know? Do they know? Yeah, they do. I, I, I yeah. messaged my brother in law and just said, uh, checked on guinea pigs. One is fine. One has had a trip to heaven. <laughs> oh, very nicely pulled. Yeah. So, and I, and I, that happened to us once. My we had two fish, and they died when we were on holiday. And my mom and dad were pretty bored with the fish, to be honest, because we didn't look after them very well, even though they're just fish. And they died, and my gran replaced them, and we never knew wow. that they were different fish. And my mum and dad were so angry that my grand had replaced them because they didn't want to look after them anymore. So give us a little bit of background to you, Adam. Please give us a little bit of background about who you are. Let's hear a little bit about you and your career and tell us why has the variety of theatre spiced up your life? Well, I was always taken to the theatre as a child. My parents were really big theatre goers, um, mostly all the local amateur theatres. So we used to go to all the village halls around and then to some of the big places. And so I grew up going to at least three or four pantomimes every year and then the plays throughout the year. And then I got into school productions and I just loved it. I, I never felt more at home than when I was in the school auditorium and, and hall and on the stage. And so sad that even on my lunch hour, sometimes I would sneak into the theatre and just sit on an empty stage behind the curtain and have my sandwiches all on my own, almost in the pitch dark. I just felt really at home there. And so then when I got to sort of like 16, 17, it was really the only thing that I thought that I could or wanted to do. And so then went to drama school and left there and then just became a, a, a jobbing actor. But 
I always seem to have a, a passion for variety theatre, the specialist acts, the ventriloquists. I love ventriloquists. I love comedians. I love all the jugglers and all those sort of specialty acts. And so variety theatre. And then I got a little taste when I was at drama school of musical, old time musical. And um, it was a, a musical director who gave me a song. He said, oh, I've got a song that I think that would be suitable for you to go out and audition. And everyone else was getting songs from Les Mis and Phantom and Miss Saigon and all these. And the song that he thought would most suit my personality and my talents was a song called Where Did Robinson Crusoe Go With Friday on Saturday Night? And so... <laughs> <laughs> when I graduated and I went into auditions and I was in front of Cameron McIntosh's casting director and, and people like that, and they'd say, oh, what are you giving us today? And everyone else had been doing all the Andrew Weber repertoire, etc. And I would say, well, I'm giving you where did Robinson Crusoe go with Friday on Saturday night? And, they, and I had one director ring up the next day and said, you're the maddest person we've ever met in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you got noticed. Got noticed, yeah, no, ex exactly, exactly. And then just completely fell into music hall. And our principal at college uh, always used to say to us, the phone isn't going to ring for you. You have to make it ring. You know, the National Theatre aren't just going to suddenly pick up the phone or, you know, the casting director of one of the big soaps. You've got to make it ring and you've got to make your own work. And you've got to keep working to keep all the skills that you've learned you know, really um, oiled and, 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 you know, well practiced. And so when I graduated, I spoke to a guy that had graduated the year before, one of my best friends. Why don't we set up a little theatre company and we will then tour the nursing homes, the day centres, etc. with nostalgic entertainment. And that's what we did. And so then, because this was 20 odd years ago, the, the entertainment for the people that were in nursing homes were the war tunes, you know, so all the war songs, etc. Um, and I make that point because now, 20 odd years later, the people who are in nursing homes like the songs of the 50s and mm. early 60s, because that's when they were going out and courting and snogging and going to dances and, and all that sort of thing. So time moves on. But yeah, that that was our, it, um, that's what we did. And that's what we, we went out and did uh, the entertaining around all the old places and that's that's a really hard place to do because basically you've you're going into their own front room they haven't invited you they just sat there they're sat in their front room with seven or eight other elderly people and you've just walked in you've put up a bit of curtain and you and your mate have got out a load of props and you just start singing and dancing at them um and one lady in particular she she clearly didn't want us there and she stood up and she walked very slowly towards me and my friend Robert mm -hmm. and we're singing and dancing, you know, underneath the arches and we're doing all of that. And she just comes up really, really close and says, will you go away? <laughs> <laughs> and we just carried on. <laughs> I'm interested to see what will be in the nursing homes when we're in nursing homes. Yeah. I feel like it'd be quite funny if there's some young thing being a Britney Spears impersonator or something from when yeah. we were going out and we'll tell her to go to home. Go away. <laughs> yeah, coming in dressed in a meat outfit as Lady Gaga or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
So how did you get involved with the British Music Hall Society? Yeah, so as I said, I was kind of introduced to Music Hall at, at college by given uh, by being given this uh, song. And then when I was in my third year, the second year did an old time musical, which unfortunately I wasn't involved with. But my best friend at drama school, Anthony, he um, he sung a song, uh, the, the Marrow song, Oh, What a Beauty, I've Never Seen One As Big As That Before, a great old time music song. And I just, oh, I loved it, I loved it. And so when me and my friends started to put some shows together, I said, I, I want to get some musical numbers in there, et cetera, et cetera. And then <clears throat> we've been working, I suppose, on and off for about a year or so. And you write to hundreds of nursing homes and maybe a handful ring you up and say, yeah, we've booked you. But they have very, very little money, you know. And um, so we thought, how can we get to the top of the pile? We need a patron. We really need a patron. And so we decided who was who was the person in this country who was kind of connected or associated with musical variety entertainment. And we decided a gentleman who sadly passed away last year called Roy Hudd. Uh, he was the best person. He was the walking encyclopedia. And so we wrote to him. Didn't really expect him to reply, but he, he very kindly did. And he said that if we set up a show, uh, you know, somewhere, um, he would come and see it. And he did. He came to see it. And um, he then just uh, agreed to become our patron. And uh, he wrote a lovely few articles about us in, in magazines and, and all this. Um, and, and so at the time, he had just become the president of the British Musical Society. So just having a chat one day, he said, well, have you thought of going to the Musical Society? And I said, oh, no. He said, well, go along. And so I, I went along and I walked in and i was the only person uh with a color to their hair and uh <laughs> and the gentleman came up to me the loveliest man who i got to know very 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 well um who at the time was the archivist of the musical society and the historian and he came up and he just said i think you're in the wrong place young man <laughs> and i said oh no i don't think so and he said well where do you think you are and i said well i think i'm in the british musical society roy hudd has sent me and he's like oh wow okay so that was one month and then a month later they had another show and i went along to it and at that second so literally four weeks after i'd stepped into my first musical society show uh, the chairman pulled me to one side and he said, would I like to join the committee? <laughs> and I said, but I've only been I, I only I've only been once and that was four weeks ago. And he said, yes, but we're desperate for young people. And, and that was 20 odd years ago. And here I sit today as the chairman of the British Musical Society, which still is unbelievable. It's a, an amazing honour. You know, the society has been going, uh, well, next week, I think we've been going 58 years. Wow. And we've got we've got some amazing patrons. We've got a new president because obviously Roy sadly passed away. We've got a new president, Paul O'Grady. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great honor to chair this wonderful society. Why don't you just give us a little bit more information about the society and what, what you do at the society and what kind of things you're aiming for in the future? Well, the society was formed in uh, 1963. On Good Friday, 1963, the old Metropolitan Music Hall, Edgware Road, was closing. And uh, two gentlemen uh, went to see it. And as they were walking back down Edgware Road, were thoroughly depressed that all these music halls were being closed down. 
Um, there were so many of them in the late 50s and early 60s. They were all being closed down. And what could they do about it? So they decided to put an advert in uh, the stage newspaper asking if any like-minded people would like to get together. And in September 1963, they met in a pub on Tottenham Court Road, and that's where the Musical Society was founded. Um, and since then, we've been trying to uh, educate, preserve, um, celebrate musical and variety theatre, because musical kind of ended at the First World War, when after the First World War, cinema, radio, jazz entertainment, it really had changed after that. And we then went into uh, variety theatre. But all the big plush musicals that had been built around the turn of the century were now filled with variety. So although we're called the British Musical Society, we cover musical and variety theatre. Mm. And our archive is probably slightly more um, filled with variety um, uh, things, memorabilia, etc., than musical, because unfortunately, because it's much older and people didn't save stuff, they used to just throw posters yeah. away or whatever. It's much harder to, to find. But um, yeah, we've got we've got many, many variety posters. And of course, variety sustained, didn't it, right up until the 80s? I mean, it didn't sort of start to fall off the radar a little bit until then. Why do you think that it declined? Why do you think that the interest in it seemed to wane at that time? Well, I think that if you go back to uh, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the British seaside was still going. Mm. The British seaside, apart from this year, obviously, with the pandemic, which has slightly filled them. But unfortunately, when you look at the seaside resorts uh, in 2021, although they might be popular and busy with people because of the pandemic, we don't have the summer shows that we used to have. Um, there's a great double act, uh, Simmons Brothers, who I saw when I was a child, Alan and Keith Simmons. Um, it's now Alan retired and it's now Keith and his son, Ben. Um, and they're called Simmons and Simmons. And Alan and Keith said to me many, many years ago that they had two gigs a year. One was pantomime because pantomime would last four to five months of the year. It would take up, you know, they would rehearse maybe October, then work November, uh, December, January and February, maybe even into March, then have a few weeks off. And then because Easter's coming, you're starting your summer seasons mm. at all the resorts and you might do, you know, three or four months at one resort and then you're back into rehearsal pantomimes after maybe a few weeks off. Um, but that's all declined and pantomimes getting shorter and shorter. Pantomime now tends just to take up December. It very rarely goes into January. When it first started, it only started on Boxing Day. As a performer, I can't imagine <laughs> trying to have my Christmas dinner while still panicking about my lines, my costume changes and everything else that is going on. <laughs> so I, I, I can't imagine opening on Boxing Day. I can't imagine that at all. Now, at least we rehearse at the beginning or the end of November, the beginning of December. Um, and so once Christmas is there, you're quite looking forward to a, just a day off or whatever. But uh, yeah. And what people don't get who come and see pantomimes is that that pantomime performer has that one day off 
and then they're probably driving 200 miles yeah. just to see their family, just to see some rubbish presents being unwrapped, and then <laughs> and then uh, driving back the next day, you know. So, so Panto's yeah. been a big part of variety, hasn't it? And it's also been a big part of your career as well. Tell us a little bit about your Panto career. Yeah, well, I've done Panto nearly every single year since I graduated from college. And it, it's I think my first Panto was actually just a Panto tour going around working men's clubs and schools etc etc with a company called chaplin's panto who, who are still going now and so you do the schools during the day and then you go to a british legion in the evening and then after that um i then just started yeah do, doing regular theater pantomimes and yeah you start off being maybe prince charming and then you slowly get told Actually, I think this year you're going to be the ugly sister. <laughs> okay. And you're happy about Thanks that, very let's much. be honest. There's much better roles. <laughs> much better role, much better role. And I can get my amazing ballet dancer legs exactly. up. So, yeah. <laughs> so when you're performing a show and you're doing a school in the day and a working men's club in the night, what's the difference there as a performer? With all performances, you've got to know where you're placing your performance. Um, so if you're doing camera work on television, you're only placing it a few yards away from your face. Or if you're playing a 1,000-seater theater, you've got to place it to the person who is right, right upstairs in the gallery, the very back seat. So for me, it's all about placement of, of, um, of your performance. Now, it depends what character you're playing, which audience member or which audiences are more suited to your character. So for me, when I do pantomime, the evening performances, which has got a few more adults in, so you might have mum, dad, grandparents, and then one child. So you've possibly got one child amongst four or five adults. So it's more adults. During the day, if you do a 10 o'clock show or one o'clock show, you might have one adult to every 10 children because the local school has come and you've just got Mr. Smith sat on the end of the row who, as a dame, you just focus on and absolutely, <laughs> you know, uh, pick on the whole time. And the kids love it. And if he's foolish enough to sit near the front, well, that's his fault, you know. So. I bet most of the times the schools were the tougher audience than the working men's clubs. Oh, indeed. Yeah, in, in, indeed. Yeah, no, sure, 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 sure. And it depends, you know, if you've got maybe an all-girls school or you've got a very strict Catholic school or whatever, they all bring completely different things. and and some of those audiences so the kids audiences of the silly billy the buttons character you know because he's he's saying silly little jokes they don't necessarily get a middle-aged man dressed in a frock you know they think it's slightly scary and, and they don't quite get it um and maybe some of the young boys like cinderella or you know the girls like the handsome prince or whatever yeah so playing now I play Dame or Ugly Sister, I prefer an adult audience for myself. Um, mm. Yeah, because, it, because it's more rewarding for me as a performer. How can people get in touch with the society or join the society if they're interested? I know that you do a lot of events, a lot of lectures and shows. So how can people get in, in touch with you? Uh, we have a website, britishmusicalsociety.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter. 
Um, so yeah, if you visit our, our website, um, we've got lots of different pages. We've got a membership page of how you can join. And a lot of people think that because most of our events, unfortunately, are in London, because most of our members are in the southeast we do have members all over the world we have you know thailand canada australia new zealand etc um but most of the committee actually are london or home counties based so a lot of our events are are in london but that doesn't mean that you can't still enjoy our society because we have a quarterly magazine that we send out um so you know you can join the society for that and also you're helping preserve because we have a massive archive department you are helping preserve for the future generations this wonderful rich uh, genre of theater of musical and variety what we love about genre is just how diverse it is and telling those stories i just think you know people can be quite dismissive of theater and actually i think theatre a lot of the time is so ahead of the curve and shapes the society and you you know you have people like RuPaul now that are just accepted as just you know so just he's a celebrity it's not niche anymore and, and that yeah. all starts from those smaller theatres like the smaller music halls the, the the shows above pubs and I and I think we're trying to highlight you know that that how credible theatre is and keeping it alive really and keep mm. keeping it going it's looking at the whole thing as a celebration yeah without any of the arts and the theatre or whatever all of those campaigns so you know uh, sexual campaigns or race campaigns whatever would still be years and years behind you know um it is theatre it, it's dramas on the television it's it's going back, you know, 200 years or whatever, or 100, you know, musicals and all sorts of stuff where people would perform, you know, and even, you know, watching um, The Greatest Showman, yeah. you know, the acceptance of a little man, you know, um, be, being able to be a performer and earn money or a bearded woman or whatever, you know. Um, and because... people really took to that when that came out as well. It wasn't, it, you know, they weren't. It wasn't being told from the perspective of it being a freak show. It, it's it's told from the perspective, and people really resonated with all of that music and the storylines and mm, the mixed yeah. raced couple. And this is the kind of stuff that we're we're wanting to explore. So I think it's amazing that the society is is archiving all that material, like you said, because if it wasn't for the society, it would just vanish. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I saw all your events recently. You posted. I don't know who manages the Facebook group. Who does the Facebook group? Because it's intense. Who writes it? You? It you? <laughs> Do you write all of that stuff? Oh my God. I wake up every day and I'm like, <laughs> who has written all this stuff? It's yeah. incredible. How long does that take you? Well, it gets it gets easier and easier because uh, a lot of the dates obviously are exactly the same every year. So mm. last night I spent an hour um because i i can i can schedule it up to 75 days ahead so at the moment i'm scheduling stuff for the first week of november okay wow. <laughs> so but all i do is now because it's, it's been it, it was going for years and it was just all very random and then a couple of years ago we started really having lots of posts and the the people that followed it just shot up and you know, completely shut up. The and engagement so, with the page and with each post 
is incredible. And the amount of people that have such personal connections with the people that you mm -hmm. write about is, yeah. is fantastic. And from it, all it, over the world. It's read by three million people a week. So, um, but uh, yeah, no, so all I do now without letting the secret out, <laughs> all I do now is if I was doing today, okay, I would go to the 26th of August last year and see what I did and just completely copy and paste the post because an obituary of someone that was born on today, that can be exactly the same. The pictures can be exactly the same. And then the only thing that has taken on over the last year, we never ever used to acknowledge uh, the day that people had passed away. It was only the day people were right. born. Right. Because we thought that the day people passed away was a little bit morbid or whatever. But unfortunately, we did a couple of them because we hadn't done the day they were born. And unfortunately, the day people uh, passed away is more popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, yeah, people love people love it. But the, yeah, so yeah, so I, I just I, I just spend uh, an hour or so every week just up, you know, pushing it forward. So at the moment, last night I was doing the third, fourth, and fifth of November. So yeah. It's right. incredible. Fantastic it's page, incredible. and I would tell anyone to go and check it out. Absolutely. Pleasure. So if we um, could ask you, who is your favourite variety performer and why? Well, modern day, uh, kind of like variety performers, I was obsessed as a child. And in fact, some of my friends still call me Brucey <laughs> because I was obsessed. <laughs> I was obsessed with Bruce Forsythe, absolutely obsessed with him. And I, I was uh, over the years very lucky to meet him a few times and yeah, just just adored the man. And funny enough, um, uh, I, I saw him being interviewed once on, on the television. I was about 14 years of age and he said that he was going to be at the London Palladium. And I came in from school the next day. And I, without my parents knowing, I snuck to where the phone was and I dialed the operator and I said, could you put me through to the London Palladium, please? And they put me through to the London Palladium and, and I said, oh, I'm just inquiring how much tickets are. And, I, you know, I was 14. I didn't have a credit card. I mean, I had no way of paying, but I was hoping to get the information and then just maybe ask my mum, etc. And... My mum came in halfway as I was having the conversation and she was mouthing, who are you talking to? Who's talking? And I said, oh, why don't the London Palladium? She said, put the phone down now, put it down. I said, oh, I'm really sorry, I've got to go. And she said, OK, go and sit in the lounge. And I went and sat in the lounge and she said, well, this was going to be a surprise. You didn't know this, but we've already got you tickets to the London Palladium to see Bruce Forsyth. Oh. And then he recorded that show. And after that, I watched it. I'm not going to say I watched it every day, but I watched it at least once or twice a week. This hour show, I would always be in front of watching Bruce Forsyth do it. And I, I could do it almost word for word, the whole act. What is it about Bruce Forsyth that you love so much? Well, Bruce Forsyth um, has kind of got, he, he breaks down. So in the theatre, we have this fourth wall that normally in plays, musicals, you don't talk to the audience. But Bruce Forsyth loved to connect with the audience. And he always did that. He would always throw something out. Even if he's on camera, he would throw it to the audience behind. And there's that connection. 
And that's what I love about pantomime. There is that connection with the audience. You know, you can pick someone out and, and, and say something. You might be able to ad lib here and there. And, and that's what I first liked about Bruce Forsyth. And I think when Les Dennis took over Family Fortunes years ago, Bob Monkhouse rang him up, who was the previous uh, host of Family Fortunes. And he said, if I could give you one tip, have one camera, and I know Bruce Forsyth always did this, have one camera that is always in the same position. It doesn't move. And so when you, when you want to just look at the audience, just look straight down the camera. And Bob Monkhouse said, a look can say much more than words. Mm. So you might just suddenly look into the camera and people at home can make up whatever joke they want to make up, you know. Um, and yeah, and that's and, and also um, Larry Grayson was amazing at oh, that. Yeah, yeah. Just, look, just looking into the camera and at home you made your own joke up, you know. So, yeah. And when you met him in real life, did he live up to your expectation? Yeah, he did, actually. Yeah, I met him quite a few times. Um, I I used to go to quite a few filmings of the Generation Game and he had uh, a series called Bruce's Guest Night and I was very lucky to meet Tony Bennett, uh, Roy Castle and yeah quite a few other people there. Um, yeah so <laughs> I was a little bit obsessed with Brucey uh, but and yeah. And he used to and do then... his own warm-ups didn't he before he would record those shows he would do his own warm-ups. Yeah, he, he, he was he was about the only person that would do his, his own warm up because, as I say, he really liked connecting with, with, with the audience. So he would come out, chat with the audience. And then as soon as like on the generation game, when they stopped the cameras to set up the next game, he would walk straight up into the audience and keep the audience going and talk to them. Um, when other people that were on the show didn't, they would maybe go to their dressing room and then be called back. He never, ever left the audience. He'd go straight back into the audience. And he'd constantly be saying, come on, ask me a question, ask me a question. And I was there one night and a man put his hand up and said, Brucey, can I ask you a question? And he said, yes, of course you can. And he said, Brucey, be honest, is that a wig you're wearing? <laughs> <laughs> and all the cameramen and all the stage hands put down absolutely everything and just turned around and looked <laughs> and thought, oh my God, how is he going to answer this? And Bruce was very honest and he said, no, it's not a wig. And everyone's like, are you sure? Are you sure? And he said, it's not a wig, it's a weave. And he said, basically, <laughs> I have my hair cut, they weave this into my hair and then my hair grows naturally. And every five weeks I have it unwoven my hair is trimmed and then I have it, you know, woven back into it. So, yeah. But and then he's like, OK, are you happy? And the guy went, yeah, I'm happy. And he just carried on. Uh -huh. So I love Bruce Forsyth. Les Dennis, Dustin G were kind of of my era. They were always on the telly. That They were great. I love ventriloquists. So I used to love Keith Harris. And a lot of people are going to say, did you love Keith Harrison Orville? No, I used to love Keith Harrison Cuddles. Cuddles was the monkey who was always really naughty, really naughty. And if I had to sum up my childhood, it would be cheeky, naughty, mischievous. So all the characters that I like 
all the kid characters are kind of like the mischievous one, you know, Fozzie Bear and the Muppets and, and uh, you know, Cuddles and, and people That's like that. That's the sign of being a true fan, isn't it, when you you prefer Cuddles overall? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, and again, it was very, you know, my parents, for one of my birthdays, uh, took me to see uh, Keith Harris Norville, and then the following year took me to see um, Rod Hull and Emu, and uh, he came off the stage and was doing all of that business with Emu around my mother's skirt and up my mother's skirt, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, my dad didn't take, take too kindly to it and squared up to Rod Hull. And uh, <laughs> yeah, didn't. did Emu attack him? It was a very awkward 10th birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it was a hairy moment. <laughs> well, my dad basically said that there's a very thin piece of cloth between that man's hand and my wife's underwear so yeah Fair enough. <laughs> it's true you probably could, your dad probably could yeah, have got but... together with michael parkinson and they probably could have gone round and <laughs> got some yeah. revenge on him yeah, yeah so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. what is it that you love about ventriloquists do you think what's that that spark for you the cheekiness the cheekiness because you've got you've got a dummy that can say anything at all and they're always cheeky they're always absolutely cheeky and that probably ties in why i like being dame because mm. you have so much license you have so much license to say things you know and i've been in many uh, a rehearsal for pantomime when a director has said my company we open tomorrow just to make it clear there are no ad libs happening in my show we have rehearsed it there are no ad libs apart from one person and that is the dame can ad lib and i'm like yes yes um so yeah that's what i like about french reliquists and so going back to your question which was probably about half an hour ago <laughs> who is my favorite variety act i'm gonna have to pick sandy powell oh. sandy powell was a comedian he was born 1900 in rotherham um, up in the north and but he was known as Mr. Eastbourne because he did many, many summer seasons at the Eastbourne Pier. And he had a ventriloquist act that was purposefully dreadful. And he used to put this really big moustache on, which covered his lips, <laughs> and then talk, okay, but move his lips as well. And he would also, his wife was part of the act as well. And sometimes if she was having a go at him, he would use the head of the dummy. He'd poke his hand out, out of the neck. So you could see his hand and he'd be like pointing to her with this, with the head. So he was so a little bit like Tommy, the Tommy Cooper of bad Yeah, being a bad magician. Yes, or Le Les Dawson at the piano. And they're high, they're highly skilled. You have to be highly skilled to be able to pretend to do it badly. And there's a story of um, Sandy Powell was at a working men's club and he was doing his dreadfully uh, purposefully dreadful ventriloquist act and <laughs> the steward afterwards said well i could see your lips move <laughs> that's great and sandy said to him yes but only when the dummy was speaking <laughs> so i think because i didn't see him live you know there are lots of people you know shirley bassey great bright you know great act in the variety theater I'd like to have seen Max Miller again. He's a, a great comedian of, of, of that time. But yeah, if I had to pick one, it would be Sandy Powell. 
And what about theatres? Surely you must have performed at a lot of theatres or seen a lot of theatres around the UK in your time. Uh, what would you say is your favourite theatre and why do you think it's so special to you? Well, there are many, many theatres. Yeah, you're, you're right. I've been very lucky in my career that I visited many, many theatres, the length and breadth of Great Britain. And the ones that always stand out, and can I ask you to clarify the question? Am I answering this as a performer or as an audience member? Because they might be slightly different answers. So as an audience- I think either or both, because I, I agree. I think I have personally have a different answer to both. Okay, well, let's, let's, get, let, let's give, us, give us the two answers. Well, as an audience member, any Frank Matcham theatre is incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. The London Palladium, Blackpool uh, Grand, Buxton, Opera House, Belfast Opera House, they're all utterly, utterly amazing. Really plush places, the London Coliseum, amazing places. But backstage, they're pretty grotty. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so from an audience point of view, any any of those. From a performer's point of view, I don't I, I like performing in those places because they've usually got the most amazing acoustics. And when you stand on that stage, although they're enormous places, they still feel very, very intimate. You know, you stand on the London Palladium stage, the Belfast Opera House stage, they're still very, very intimate places, although they see, you know, over thousand the London Palladium over a couple of thousand, you know. Um but, so I don't mind working backstage at those places, but some of the new newer places, you know, the Curve at Leicester is a lovely place. Um, the Wickham Swan, the Aylesbury Waterside Theatre. These modern theatres, they're really plush and comfortable backstage, um, but it's a different vibe on stage because it's all very new, it's all very boxed and, uh, yeah. So it's a tricky one to answer because you get, you get half of enjoyment in one and half of it in the other. Yeah. Can you think of a place that combines both? Well, I absolutely adore the Albert Hall. I never go yeah. there without being utterly, utterly amazed, mm -hmm. utterly amazed. But I never performed there. Um, so I've got no idea what it's like backstage. I imagine it's not Mike great. It's performed. nice. Yeah, yeah no, Mike I have has... performed there. I have performed there. And it is. It's, it's beautiful backstage, actually. I, I think that's a good... That's a good shout, actually, for a combination of just as nice backstage as it is on stage. But it is, it's it's, in, it's incredible. And, you know, you even if before you go out, if you just take a quick glance up, up at the ceiling and it's so breathtaking and awe-inspiring, you can't believe that you're there. And it is, it's an incredible atmosphere, the Albert Hall. But all those other places which I've mentioned, you know, Belfast Opera House, Liverpool Empire, uh, Blackpool Grand, you can almost soak up the atmosphere backstage as, as well on all the amazing people that have performed there. And you just think, wow, I am one tiny, tiny dot in maybe a 120 year history where nearly every single night they've had a show here and I'm just here for maybe one night or a couple of nights or whatever. And all the amazing people that have gone on before you. And I think not even the actors as well. I think all the people that have worked backstage, like whether it be stagehands, directors, producers, Absolutely. all these people. And the more we look into the history of it as well, it's the same names that crop up, you know, the, the people who were managing more than one theatre at the same time. And, you know, you think God, they, they were all there. You know, everyone was was backstage and 
you know, all these different uh, dramas and romances and, and things that were happening. And like you say, you're just a tiny, tiny piece of that puzzle. And it's such an honor, I think, to be backstage at places like that. Yeah, well, at, at, at the turn of the century, you know, the, the Mustol Empire, they were big groups of theatres and they were managed by, you know, a couple of gentlemen, etc. Music Hall before that, it was just single proprietors, you know, running theatres in the backs of pubs, etc. But musical musical didn't last very long. It only lasted maybe about seventy years. It it started in about eighteen fifty, and by hmm. about the eighteen sixties, late eighteen sixties, it was killed through or it started to die off because of its own success. So there was a fire in eighteen sixty eight at a music the Oxford Music Hall on um, Oxford Street in, in London. And after that, 10 years later, you then had to get a license uh, to run a theatre and it had to tick a few boxes, you know, a certificate of suitability. Um, and unfortunately, some of those things were the selling of alcohol had to be completely separate to the theatre. There had to be a safety curtain. There had to be a proscenium arch. And then what started to happen around the turn of the century was all these big plush theatres were being built. But um, unfortunately, it took away some of the atmosphere of the musical. Um, the Daily Mail, I, I'll read this because I'll, I'll get it wrong otherwise. The Daily Mail said in 1913, you will find that the improvements amount to no more than the exclusion from the auditorium of the vulgar working class. We have not left the music hall. Music hall has left us. Wow. And so that was because all these new things had to come in. And, you know, things like uh, the London Coliseum, which opened in 1904, um, Christmas Eve, 1904, um, they were able to sell tickets in advance. No theatre before then had ever been able to sell tickets. You'd literally just turn up and buy a ticket. But they could sell tickets in advance and it, and it really changed the whole atmosphere of musical and that's why we then went into variety um but right variety brought us great you know specialist acts and conjurers and magicians and jugglers and, and singers and lo loads of different people well jumping off that we would love to know talent aside if you could be any variety act what would you be although i think i could probably hazard a guess mm. <laughs> Go on, what would you hazard a guess? I would have a safe stab in the dark, Adam, and say you'd probably be a ventriloquist. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Because, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll say it again, it gives you the license to be extremely cheeky and really push the boundaries. Because if someone complains, you, you almost can say, Oh, it's not me speaking, it's the dummy speaking. <laughs> is it something you ever considered during no, your career? No, 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 <laughs> no. So you've no. never tried it? No, never tried it. No, never tried it. And I, I think actually it's only kind of looking back at what I've enjoyed and actually you asking the question and, and me looking back that I've only recently in the last couple of years acknowledge that I have always loved ventriloquists. So the Musical Society, we put on shows every couple of months. We have a talk every month, and then every couple of months we put on a little show, an evening or whatever. And just before the pandemic, we had planned an evening to celebrate all ventriloquists. 
And it was a great, uh, I was putting it together with uh, a great ventriloquist who was on Britain's Got Talent called Steve Hewlett. And we yeah. were putting it together. And he's writing a fantastic book about the history of ventriloquists, which goes back a long, long time. Um, but unfortunately, it's been, and hopefully it will be next year, but uh, yeah, just a whole evening. And I think it was at that point, I was thinking, yeah, all the key people that, all, that I've enjoyed, and certainly as a child and now as an adult, it's the ventriloquist. Yeah. Well, listen, Adam, it's never too late to learn a new skill. You know what I mean? <laughs> Next Royal Variety performance, who could be introduced? It's Adam Borzone and Cuddles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I might, I might, might go down the the the, the uh, road of a bad ventriloquist. Yeah. I'll do that act. <laughs> what would your puppet be if you were a ventriloquist? Oh my word! Well, I think it, I think it would probably be a boy. Uh, I think it would be a cheeky boy. It. I, I kind of think. I think that a lot of ventriloquist dolls are an extension of the person. Mm. You know. Um, that's probably not true, obviously, with Keith Harris and Orville, but, uh, you know, <laughs> but know. Th th there's, <laughs> they're a slight extension of that person. They're, they say the things that you wouldn't dare say in, in real life. Yeah, so I'm probably guessing a cheeky schoolboy. So, but, and, and, and that reminds me, another act that I was completely in love with as a child the was the Crankies. The Crankies. Oh, amazing. Absolutely loved the Crankies. And yeah, I remember that conversation. What? It's a woman? What are you talking about? <laughs> now we've got some quick fire questions that we're going to ask you. So we have got some this or that choices that we're going to give to you. And we just want an instinctive answer about which one you would choose. Do you think you're up for that? Let's go for it. Okay. Aladdin or Cinderella? Cinderella. Dramatic play or musical comedy? Musical comedy. Morecambe and Wise or the two Ronnies? Two Ronnies, definitely. Punch and Judy or Richard and Judy? Oh. <laughs> I mean, potato, potato is a bit of a <laughs> never, seen in this, never seen in the same room, um, but... Uh, <laughs> Richard and Judy, I'll go. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Would you rather be sat in the audience or waiting in the wings? Waiting in the wings, yeah. Definitely great answers. Fantastic answers. So like we said, all the information about the British Musical Society can be found at the website or on their social media. Adam Warzone, the chairman of the British Musical Society, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thanks, bye, -bye. Adam. bye now. Oh, what a lovely guy and what a great first guest to have on. Yes, so we hope everyone enjoyed that as much as us. And how funny as well that he mentioned Tommy Cooper. Yes, because next week's episode has a very special link to Tommy Cooper. So tune in next week to find out more. We hope you've enjoyed spending this time with us. I've certainly enjoyed spending time with you, Maria, and with Adam. <laughs> and I have certainly enjoyed spending my time with you, Mike. I'm so and glad. Well done on getting through the whole podcast without laughing at the picture. <laughs> <laughs> you just re-reminded me. Oh, honestly, it's the funniest picture. I might, have to, I might put it on the frame this Instagram. I think you should. I think everyone's <laughs> going to want to know. And talking about the Instagram, if you have liked this episode, please come and join us at the Frame This Presents Instagram and Facebook pages to find out more about the podcast and our show twice nightly, which is being performed at Thorrington Theatre on the 5th of 
September and the Liverpool Theatre Festival on the 7th of September. We really would love to see you there. And if you come, make sure you give us a shout and we'll say hello afterwards. Remember to hit the subscribe button. And if you really would like to help us out, leave us a review as well, as it gives the podcast a better chance of being seen by a wider audience. See you next week. <laughs> yes, you look like Michael Smaller Parkinson. Than <laughs> Don't mention Michael Parkinson. Don't mention Polly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>